just wanted to know what's behind that curtain. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima. And today I am talking with Bobby Okinaka in Niorogawa, Kochi Prefecture, Shikoku Island. Thank you so much for joining, Bobby. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thanks for not saying Bobby Okinawa. Oh, do people say that? All the time. Oh, wow. You almost did earlier. Did I? <laughs> Okinaka. I mean, Okinaka is rather unusual, I guess, for Japanese names. You said there's a lot of Okinakas in the Hiroshima area and in Hawaii. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. From, from Iwakuni, a lot of people、uh, immigrated to Hawaii, but I'm the California Okinakas.、Yeah. Cool. Very cool.、Uh, tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you end up in the middle of nowhere? Now, you kind of were introduced there by one of my previous guests, Ken Mukai of Mukai Craft Brewery. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, he and I, we go way back.、Um, I knew him in college, actually. And、uh, yeah, so. so I was living in Tokyo and、uh, I've been there since nine,、uh, 2009. And then,、um, Ken,、uh, well, I got married and I had a kid. And so when my kid was born, I always wanted to figure out like, like, let's live in the countryside when he's little. And the main reason why was bacteria. You know, just to get that mud and, you know, just to get his, get his uh, uh, exposed to good bacteria. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but anyway,、uh, you know, you're not going to get that in Tokyo. So,、um, yeah, so、but、I it, looked for opportunities. It sounds like you also had health problems in Tokyo. You well, said in your interview that your respiratory problems healed up when you moved to Kochi,、um, is that right? Well, I mean, I, I developed asthma and,、uh, and I have like a kind of allergic reactions and things, a stuffiness with my nose.、Um, I'm on med medicine right now so I can breathe, but, but、uh, I couldn't smell for a while. Yeah, and it wasn't COVID related. But no, I, I've been here one year and I expected like clean air and clean water would kind of heal things up, but it hasn't quite happened. Yeah. But you are living a much more slow life. Your blog is actually called Slow in Japan. Yeah, my、um, blog I haven't updated in like. <laughs> But are you, are you feeling like it's a healthier place? Not only maybe you're next to local food, clean water, clean air, but also as a family, you came from the city in California, you came from the city in Tokyo. Now you're in beautiful Kochi. Is it a, a good balance for the family to live out there?、Um, well, in terms of like healthiness, The negative side to that is、uh, we have a car now. So that means you don't walk as much. Yeah. 
So in Tokyo, you're just walking everywhere. And it, it just, um, that was really good, actually. And here, you just kind of sit on your butt in the car at home. But you don't have to. Like one of the uh, John Dobbs uh, interview with Ken Mukai, which you shared on, on your socials, um, he's interviewing a local guide. And she says, I love it because I can walk to the beautiful river. I can walk to the mountains. I can walk to the ocean really easily from this area. And Bobby, all of your beautiful photos, you must be doing hikes and stuff. It's um, gorgeous. Actually, <clears throat> we don't have a lot of hiking trails here. The mountains are just too steep. And then the locals always say like snakes. You know, because I, I wanted to go mushroom hunting. And actually, uh, at the end of uh, the rainy season, there's like this glow in the dark or not a glowing mushroom that I want to go see at nighttime. But uh, no, it's just not, hiking is not, th there's a lot of river activities here. Yeah. Yeah, I interviewed that. Zoe. I yeah. interviewed Zoe and they're doing the river adventures. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, you're next to this amazing river. You don't go supping or at least walking next to the river? Um, yeah, no, the river's great, you know, because the water's so clear and pure. So, uh I guess you're going to get a river picture somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking for it. There we go. But, um, yeah, so the river's great. Uh, I, and I, I'd like to spend more time there, but my son is afraid of the river. So he's he's we got to get him a life jacket. Yeah. But that's probably a healthy fear, right? Because he's little. Isn't he? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was that was when I talked to Zoe. It looks like they're doing great work with the kayaks and kayaks that you can hike with on your back. Now your passion, it seems like you are diving into the dirt, shall we yes. say? Yes. <laughs> when did that passion start? Well, it came from mushrooms, actually. So um the psychedelic kind. I, I, you know, I got to go back to America for that, but I guess, uh, no, but, but I was, um, uh, watching a lot of mushroom videos because I was interested in growing mushroom that tastes like bacon. Yeah. And, um, you know, just mushrooms as meat alternatives and, uh, like portobello's amazing grilled portobello's right and shiitake is quite good grilled yeah shiitake is really good yeah and and so what happened was uh on my youtube feed this guy popped up and he was talking about fungi in the soil and that you can grow it through a a, a special compost so um and he's like, this this fungi is in the soil everywhere. But because we till, we plow, we dig up the soil, you're destroying it. And, uh, you know, the first plants, they, they didn't have roots. So they developed this uh, symbiotic relationship with fungi. 
and the fungi fungi would uh, get water and nutrients and feed the plant and the plant would get the sun power and feed the uh, sugars to the fungi. So that kind of continues to this day. Um, but with modern agriculture, it's uh, uh, we've lost a lot of that. So anyway, so that's, I saw a video about fungi in the soil, how to make it. And I was just like, hey, I, I want to I try to make that. And so I gathered up a bunch of bamboo leaves. And believe it or not, it's really hard to get leaves where I'm living in the, in the middle of a forest. There you go. Me with leaves. And the reason why is because um, all the trees here are suki. You know, they, they're planting all these trees, that, cedar trees that grow really fast for the wood. And they just kind of, they lost a lot of the, the um, original forest here. So it's really hard to get leaves, believe it or not. <laughs> but then you were using this interesting type of composter. Can you explain yeah. this? So this is called, this is the video that I saw. And the device is called a bioreactor. And what happens is um, the microorganisms, they need uh, moisture and they need a food supply and they need air. So when you have a regular compost pile, you, uh, you kind of squeeze all that air out and you get anaerobic bacteria. And so with this, comp that's why it has that tube in there. So the tube uh, allows air to go into the in between the well, into the compost pile, and you get aerobic bacteria. And then uh, they're doing their thing, and then that gets followed up by these fungi, and they do their thing. And the key to this compost is that you don't you don't mess with it. You just leave it for one year. And basically these fungi will come, they'll digest or they'll eat things. And then when they're done, they'll sporulate, they'll make their spores. And then you take that and you put that into your field. And then you, you're basically inoculating the field so that the, um, the plants will benefit from the microorganisms and what they'll do. Yeah. That's when the magic happens. That's so I've been really told. interesting. Uh, I was talking to Lee uh, Shanji, who's in Wakayama, and you were actually a jet in Wakayama, right? Yes. Um, but he was talking about uh, trying to compost weeds and how difficult it was. Yeah. Um, but you were also mentioning about uh, Gabe Brown and his five principles. So that idea of not disturbing it yeah. and no tilling. Yeah. I've heard that from uh, Thomas Klepfer, no-till organic farmer in our area, yeah. that not disturbing the soil. So even the compost, not disturbing it. That makes sense. Yeah, well, the whole regenerative. So so, so that I started out with that compost, and then I got into, like, I saw Gabe Brown video, and then I got into regenerative agriculture. And you know the movie uh, Kiss the Ground? You know, so there's this whole movement of like how to regenerate soil because 
a lot of times when I tell people like, okay, this is what I want to do with this. I want healthy soil. The first thing people will say is that they say it takes thousands of years to make soil. And yeah, if you take a rock, yeah, it's going to take a long time for that rock to become soil. But what I'm talking about is not making soil. What I'm talking about is making soil healthy, right? Because of, uh, you know, when you add all those chemicals and when you dig up the soil and, and kill the microorganisms, you know, you just basically have just a medium, just like hydroponics. You're growing soil and water. Water is just the medium. And then you put the nutrients in there to feed the plant to grow. So what we're talking about is with regenerative agriculture is inoculating the soil, putting the microorganisms back in there. And then they, you, you let nature do the work. You know, uh, the microorganisms are going to, are, are they're, they're going to act as the, the immune system and they're going to fight off the the disease and the harmful fungi and bacteria you know they're going to uh the the land is going to become a sponge and it's going to absorb water so that months later you know it hasn't rained for months but the the land still plants still thrive and then carbon you know, we lost so much carbon from the soil, from ma modern agriculture. And I'm still learning what carbon does. I can't explain it, but I just know that the soil needs carbon, that we've we've depleted it of that carbon. And, well, and so that's you, why like hmm. regenerative agriculture is a really good uh, solution to helping uh, sequester CO2 from the atmosphere. Definitely. And so many great examples. Uh, I saw that NHK video that you shared um, about biochar yes. and uh, using like old dead wood trees. You cut them down. You make a kind of quick charcoal. It, it looks like quick charcoal, uh, but you have a certain level of it and you make it watery and then you put that in the soil and that captures the carbon and builds up the soil. And then you can have healthier trees and healthier plants. There's so many great ideas. Um, also watching that Gabe Brown video that you shared about uh, uh, balancing animals and uh, different diverse crops and cover crops and you, you're learning so much great stuff yeah yeah well that's a great thing like like you know youtube university right like i don't i'm 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 doing self-learning basically and uh i do want to talk to experts but um i'm able to just like go online and like listen to these like professors talk and things and uh it's really forward stuff, like disruptive stuff. So I, I, I'm trying to learn what they're doing in Japan as well. Like I, I just today, I discovered this thing called Kyosei farming. And uh, it's this system where it, it, it's natural farming. Japan is kind of known 
for natural farming, like Fukuoka is one of the guys, the main guy that's known internationally. But there are a lot of other guys. And they here in Japan, like they do different things, like with more uh, anaerobic bacteria making bokashi. And uh, I'm trying to learn what these guys are doing because the weather conditions are different. A lot of the regenerative farming stuff, it's like we don't get enough rain, you know? So, so, so when it does rain, the topsoil gets washed away and so on. Here in Japan, you know, the conditions are they get a lot of rain. And so it's got to be a different situation with the bacteria and the fungi, which I don't understand. So I'm just wondering, will regenerative practices work here? Or, you know, should I figure out what the Japanese guys are doing and copy what they do? But there are certain, certain things that, that are, uh, how should I say, kind of true for everything. Like, you know, you got to keep the soil moist. You got to keep it protected. You got to um, um, have diversity. You know, this idea of monocropping, just growing the same vegetable. And then these bugs would just attack it and just eat everything. You know, I have in my garden right now, you know, I'm growing corn and beans and some other things. And the bugs are just eating the bean plants, but they don't eat the other plants. So you got to use observation, you know, but diversity is, is really key to like uh, uh, building a healthier microbiome, like all these different bacteria and fungi, everything that we don't see. So I don't know how to do it yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm in that practice of like trial and error. But to tell the truth, I don't have like 10 years, like to go through 10 seasons, 10 cycles and say like, oh, I learned this last year. I really don't have that time. Because my time scale is like 2030. You know, like, like I need to not perfect the system, but kind of figure out what works as quickly as possible so that we can figure out, you know, so, so we can like multiply it, right? And yeah. get get more people to do it so that we can pull that carbon out of the air, put it in the soil, grow healthy food, have clean water, protect the oceans. You know, all that agricultural runoff just gets washed into the water. Yeah. Creates those dead zones. Yeah. You and know? you're you're trying it. You know, you've got your your lab is your garden. You're trying cover crops here, for example, right? Yeah, um, I just cleared that. I just cleared that on Saturday and I planted some uh grass. Yeah. See how that see if it grows. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm just amazed that when you put a seed in the ground that it will grow. <laughs> well, you you're talking about getting so passionate about dirt. I mean, when I was doing my MA in sustainable tourism and it was a lot about sustainability and this is 10 years ago, but the biggest mind blow for me was dirt and that everything becomes dirt eventually and water. There is no new water. All of our water is recycled over and over again. So this we're drinking the same water as the dinosaurs drank. Like dirt doesn't, 
doesn't go anywhere. The water doesn't go anywhere. Everything is recycled. So putting chemicals into our water, into our dirt is killing us and our future. And what are we doing? Like for yeah. me, that was the biggest mind blow ever, you know? Amazing. So you've been learning a lot, just trying it out, learning stuff, trying it out. And you've got this project where uh, you're going to try to do regenerative gardening around the school. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, okay. So this is the community farm or garden. Basically, um, like I said, my time scale, like I just need to, you know, take that next step, even though I'm not ready for it. And so trying to start a community garden where I live is uh, impossible because everybody already has a garden, right? And they don't want to listen to my ideas. <laughs> like, you know, hey, where are the earthworms? How come you have no earthworms in your soil? They don't care because the plant is growing, you know? Oh, you just put some of this chemical on it. Uh, but I live near Kochi City. Uh, well, the idea basically is like, well, cities of the future need to have urban farms. I mean, that's just like, it's going to be part of the DNA of cities of the future, right? And so uh, I don't live in Tokyo. The nearest city is Kochi City. So I decided like, hey, let's uh, start a community farm there and use some of these regenerative uh, techniques, farming techniques, and, you know, make some compost and things like that, community composting, and just get more people involved. And then the idea is like, well, if we grow the food in healthy soil, you're going to have healthy plants. And, you know, what makes a healthy plant or a healthy fruit or vegetable? It's flavor. I mean, a, a healthy vegetable has really good flavor to it so why wouldn't you want to do that and on top of that it also has way more nu nutrition you know and uh i mean i could talk a lot about that <laughs> i won't go there yet but so, so, so this is tell us about the place so it's well, an abandoned well, old school that's is it? project that's a different project okay that, that is the uh that is the satellite campus yeah, but the community garden is basically a way of like uh, getting more people involved in regenerative gardening or farming. And uh, I got really lucky. I, I there's there's this uh, there's this uh, uh, environmental organization called Ecorabo in, uh, in in Kochi City, and and then I contacted them. And then they posted my announcement on uh, their newsletter. And I only got like two replies. And one of the people, they were like, I have a spot for you to garden, you know? And so it's uh, it's part of a, a school in uh, just outside of Kochi City. And that, that plot of land that you have it that's the land there um right there but the soil is pretty bad it's clay it's waterlogged 
and then they sprayed you can see all the dead matter right there they sprayed herbicide on it to kill the weeds and it's gray you know which is a sign of like it doesn't have enough oxygen in it or, or it has too much water in it so i got to figure out like a plan you know draining the, draining the water so it doesn't get so waterlogged aerating it adding more uh organic matter to it so yeah that that garden's gonna be a lot of work actually but we were just i was just there on sunday and we were doing this uh community cutting cutting weeds project and uh you know we're we were thinking about where we're gonna get our organic matter and just down the road from the school is a dairy farm how do I know that? Google. I was looking at Google Maps and it's just like, there's a dairy farm right here. And then I, I mentioned to the coordinator, I was like, okay, it's going to take too long for us to get compost. You know, we got to gather the leaves. We got to break them down. I was like, the fastest way we can do this is with cow manure. And uh, she was like, they give away their cow manure for free. Yeah. So we went we went there and and they it's actually already composted, which is even better. Like it it doesn't have that really stinky smell to it because it's already been composted. So all we got to do is sh get it from there to the school, you know, which you know, which is part of the planning, right? Yeah. But, it, but it's so close. I mean, things like that. So just like and it it's magic when things like that happen, right? Exactly. And you you're just thinking things out, and then people are like, "Oh yeah, let's do that," or "Oh, I know someone," or you know, like making those connections is all part of the learning. Now let's just take a step back a little bit. Yeah. So, you, why are you here? Uh, you were introduced kind of by Ken, but you were hired and funded to kind of try out living in the rural area. And you described it somewhere as they're funding you to try to encourage you to find a way to fund yourself so well, that you can stay there. Is that right? This, this is the Chikiyokoshi Kyorokutai program, right. which is, I guess, roughly translated as kind of the rural revitalization core, you know, kind of like the Peace Corps. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's a way to incentivize people to move into a town, a small town, to populate these really small. So Kochi has a lot of these people in this program compared to some of the other uh, prefectures. Uh, and you, you said some of the other people on the program are making their own washi paper, are making konyaku, devil's tongue which is actually grown from a plant. It's an amazing plant. Um, other people running a cafe. So there's lots of different ideas to use the funding and to try to become an entrepreneur. And so your idea is to do community gardens and regenerative farming. Is that right? Well, <clears throat> when I, <clears throat> I was surprised that I got to be in this program because I actually can't read kanji. And, uh, and my speaking ability is really weak. Uh, but they told me it was okay. 
And this was after Ken told me that they wouldn't accept foreigners. So uh, I was like, okay, if you'll take me, I'll, I'll do it. And my initial idea was to do something with tourism, uh, you know, just run like a, a hostel. But, you know, with coronavirus, that didn't happen. And so, uh, so I was, I was allowed, as long as what my project benefited the town, I could pursue it. So I pursued the composting and the, you know, basically I, I have some neighbor's land that I'm fixing up. Um, I'm volunteering to help with a Kozo farm. Kozo is like the plant that's used to make washi paper. I was, I was watching that. So you were doing woofing for yes. the Kozo experience. So this is the Kozo plant, yeah. right? Tell and us the process. Very cool. Well, basically, this whole area used to be like that's how that's where they made their income from. You know, like like they would grow kozo, and then they would process those branches to make uh, washi paper, and that would be used in everything in Japanese society back back in the day, right? Like, uh, and that that's our shokunin son, the craftsman. She's the last family to in, in this town to grow their own kozo, kozo <clears throat> and to steam it that's that's the process of steaming the branches to rip off the bark that becomes kozo paper and uh she's the last family to do it and like she has i was just talking with her today like you know have you ever seen washi paper being made yeah. Like so they they have a screen that they shake in the water. And so so she she's her problem is that the the screen her her screen is made using uh papyrus uh plant the stock instead of just bamboo. And so the the, the guy, the Shokunin-san, the craftsman who makes those screens, he retired. He was like 90s. And so she doesn't have anybody to make it anymore. And so she's like, how can I continue to make washi paper if I don't have the, the tools? So, so she's in this thing where like, okay, I need to grow my own plants. I need to make the paper and market it, you know, like get enough people to buy her paper. And then she also needs to make the tools to make washi paper. I so hear this so much, Bobby. Uh, people who are trying to make miso, they usually use the wooden barrels. There's nobody making the wooden barrels anymore. Yeah. Uh, people in Shikoku, not far from you, in Kamikatsu, uh, making the fermented tea. They also have certain barrels and wooden materials, which nobody's making anymore, okay, right? So here's, here's a <laughs> potential solution, okay? Yeah. I, I tried telling her, I tried telling her, talking to her about it, but she's just like, you can't just watch a YouTube video and, and make these things. You know what I mean? That's, a, that's basically where her mentality was. And she's right. You know, these are craftsmen, right? Elite, like high level stuff, right? I'm like little league. 
not that I wanted to make it, but my solution was that, well, you got to train the people to do it, right? So, but it shouldn't be up to an individual, right? It needs to be institutional. So why not have one of these art schools, you know, design schools in, in, in Japan create like a, a department for craftsmanship, right? And then they basically have to re, uh, what's it called? Reverse engineer. Look at, look at the, the books, look at everything, right? Talk, interview the craftsmen and design like, okay, this is how we can make the stuff. And then start training younger people in these skills. Now the problem is going to be like, how can the younger, how can these young people make a living making these craftsmen? Right. So then you need to kind of come up with another plan for that, for some kind of like maybe a government subsidy, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm benefiting from a government subsidy. If you could pay me, you could pay somebody to develop, you know, to be a craftsman so that like, because, yeah, I mean, somebody who's going to make these really uh, cultural th things, they're not going to yeah. make a lot of money doing it, to be honest. But, but it goes with education and training so nicely. Like you said, it would be great to see universities yes. take this on because it's connected to art history. It's connected to Japanese history. Yep. You could have students in a variety of different departments getting involved with these hands-on projects, going and visiting the area where the artisans used to be. Yeah. Uh, learning, you know, hands-on about the, the area, the community. What does the community need? These are all really important lessons for sustainability, for sure. Oh, for exactly. Like, I was just reading something the other day about, like, inflation. And they were saying, like, well, why are the, why are the prices going so high? And this guy was making an argument for... Uh, I can't remember everything exactly, but he basically was saying that that we've created a world where you're making, you're just making money. You're not making products anymore. You know, when you just make money, you can like fire people so that you make more money. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Anyway, if you're making products, you need to have the training and you need to, you know, have the the tools and everything like that so so there's a lot of knowledge that's involved in making products so there's a case to be made that like in a sustainable society rather than just focus on like how much money you can make focus on what can you make you know and then have the training involved in making those goods and making those products, you know? Yeah. And not focus, but, but, but again, you know, you got to figure out like, how are, how are they going to put food on their table? But then I, I would counter with that is that like, well, once there are no more jobs because AI, right. You know, what are all the bankers going to do? When there are no more banks, what are all the bankers going to do? So if you teach them crafts, 
how to make things, you know, instead of buying things, we'll, we'll have a choice. Instead of buying things from a factory, we could buy quality made craftsman stuff. That, yeah. that would be a sustainable economy. Yeah. And your, your kids in school, my kids went through Japanese school, uh, talking about a decrease in farmers is a huge problem in Japan. You're trying to address that with the regenerative farming and community farming. All the kids in school, they have a session of their year where they all plant plants and bring them home, take care of them, right? Um, we can do so much with encouraging education and getting kids to learn these skills that we need for our communities, right? Exactly. I love it. Now, you have been doing something really interesting with a microscope. Is this part of your learning about composting to exactly. look on yeah, the... Yeah. yeah, my microscope's right here. It's like I can... So what, what does that tell you about your level of compost? If you yeah, look so at basically it. Basically to see what microorganisms you have, you know, so, so I'm looking for bacteria, but bacteria show up as really tiny dots on, on, on these things, but you can see them moving around. If there's nothing moving around, there's no bacteria in there. Um, that's a nematode right there. So there's, thousands of nematodes that's a mite you know so so basically it's called the soil food web and there's this amazing universe in the soil you know so so you got you got all these different bacteria doing different things you know and then they, they all need food right so where does that food come from it comes from the sun Plants photosynthesize that sun energy, and then they create these sugars called uh, root exudates <laughs> that they, that they uh, you know, that the bacteria and the fungi feed off of that. And then um, other like nematodes and other organisms will feed off of the bacteria and the fungi. And then it's just like a food chain, right? It just gets, you know, and then they're all doing something. So if you have a diversity of microorganisms, then you have uh, a healthy system. And uh, I mean, like I said, like the immune system, like, like, like if, if a bad microorganism attacks, they, they create these uh, antibiotics to kill off the, the, the bad bacteria. Um, but they do all sorts. Of, so so the, these microorganisms, they create these glues. I don't know what it is, but maybe it's their poop or something. I don't know what it, but it's like these glues that cause the particles of soil to aggregate, stick to each other. And this soil aggregation is what makes good soil. Because then you, when they click, uh, when they form these aggregates, then they create pore spaces. And in those pore spaces, that's where you get oxygen and that's where you get water. And that, you know, and microorganisms need air and they need water. It's like that top six, six inches of the soil. 
And so when you when you when you grab healthy soil, which I haven't really done yet, but when you grab healthy soil, it it's it's kind of loose, but you can like ball it up and it sticks. But when you poke your hole in it, it breaks apart. You know? So so that's what that's what you want to get. And and it's all done by the microorganisms. You know, farmers, they try to do things like they're trying to, you know, oh, the pH, it's too acidic or it's too alkaline, you know, and they try to add lime or, you know, they're doing all sorts of things to the soil to make the plants grow better. But really, if you, if you have that diversity of microorganisms, they will do the work. They will protect the plant. They will feed all the nutrients to the plant uh if you have healthy soil you have less weeds weeds do not like healthy soil why because that's a weed's job is what a weed's job is to grow in poor soil to make that soil healthy does that make any sense yeah and weeds are are sometimes some people say weeds other people say it's not a weed um, I get really annoyed when I plant, I actually plant loads of clover as a cover crop and somebody in my house always pulls it as a weed. And I was like, it's not a weed, it's, it's clover. A weed. You need those clover, yeah. <laughs> you need that nitrogen. Yeah, it's why, wonderful. Why do, you, why do you dump nitrogen on there when the clover will do it for you? Clover is amazing. I love it. Um, so you did your cover crop and it was so nice to see the kozo plants um, Kozo is very similar in you're on Shikoku, Aizome, the uh, uh, in, sorry, those, those plants yeah. right there are, do you know what those are? Uh, I thought you said they're Kozo, no? Right there, no. Those are Konyaku plants. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a field I love of Konyaku. Konyaku, the devil's tongue, right? Have you ever um, seen that grow? No, I want to go and see it. I, so so I, dug, I dug them up and I gave... I gave what I could to the elementary school and they made konyaku with it. And then I had some extra ones that I put in my storage room. And then in the spring, they all just like. Wow. Just, yeah. Because I made konyaku. I did a konyaku making workshop in rural Hiroshima. And it was so wild to, to see. It's like a potato. You make like a starch gelatin -y thing and then it becomes that that gray devil's tongue eventually. Yeah, amazing. Um, so indigo is one of my favorite crops because, and very similar probably to many of the crops that you see, it grows naturally, almost wild like a weed. You can process it without any toxic chemicals for the person. The waste product can go right back into the river without a problem. So these kind of circular, regenerative weed becomes a product people can sell, becomes no waste, no problem for the community and the environment. These are ideal. Yeah, I love those. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a whole mentality about the way that a farm should look, you know, that, that you should have, you know, bare soil is better. You know, it has a clean look, you know. But uh, uh, but no, you you want that diversity. 
you know, have different plants intercropped, have, have them growing with each other. This is not my garden. This is the wild farm that no one's taking care of. This is the uh, kozo plant. On the bottom right, you can kind of see a kozo plant there. And no, nobody's taking care. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Basically, what happens is the, the kozo farmers have retired. And uh, so the person who has a, a washi paper making facility in Inocho, where they have the washi paper museum, uh, they, they ran out of suppliers raw, of their raw materials. So she goes to all these farms and she's like cleaning the weeds and stuff. And so she uh, uses she uses uh, woofing to get volunteers to help her work on these fields, and then she harvests harvests the uh, kozo plant. Yeah, that's amazing. But what I, I you, yeah yeah go ahead. I'm, I'm trying to get them to use a cover crop, like like the bottom of it, so so they don't have to weed all the time, and some kind of a, a grass that they can grow that orchards use, but we need the manpower to kind of uh, get that idea working. Yeah. I talked to another washi artist. Uh, she's a photographer and artist who moved to the middle of the countryside next to Gampi weeds which is also used for washi paper in that area. So she's going out with locals because she couldn't find it. And she didn't know which one to pick at first. She was from Kyoto. Um, so the local knowledge, even knowing which tree you're supposed to be harvesting when it's all overgrown becomes a problem too, right? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, local, She's local doing great work with the, the washi paper and the, and the kozo. That's wonderful. Yeah. I but, hope she can keep going. But, you know, for craftsmen, though, the, the problem is like, they make really quality stuff, but do you have enough, you know, like, like back in the day, washi paper was like just a, like we would go to the store and buy paper towels. Right. So there was always buying washi paper in bulk. Right. So you could, you could have just, a, but nowadays it's more like a specialty thing. And so you have a more limited market. So, I was trying but to I think Bobby this is how you can combine tourism and sustainability and rural regeneration because a lot of visitors they don't want to buy paper they can get in their own country they want to experience making washi paper but they also want to buy products with Japanese washi paper yeah. so there is a demand from the tourists who come to yeah. Japan to buy these artisan products. That's well, one of the benefits, right? Well, tourism is definitely like the government has kind of using that as a way to kind of uh, generate revenue, right? But I, I, I like tourism. I think it's great. But then you also get issues with like over tourism and things like that. But um and then and then you know like a cherry blossom tree the tourisms will come the tourists will come and they'll start like tearing the tree apart and things like that so, but i'm not anti-tourist <laughs> uh 
But anyway, uh, I believe there is a better solution for uh, generating revenue for the countryside. And that is energy. You know, the, the, the potential for energy is tremendous because I'm talking about renewable energy. You know, we li- where I live, there's, you saw in the picture, there's mountains and there's streams. And they have these things called micro uh, hydro, um, p- hydropower turbines. And they're small, you know, they're called micro for a reason. Like they, they generate less than 100 uh, kilowatts of power. But uh, the the con see, see my uh, my boss <laughs> the people here their concept of hydropower is like well there's no more place we can do it because you got to dam the river you know to get enough water so you can generate like megawatts of power you know or gigawatts of power to power a whole city it's like well no this new concept. Right. Like instead of having one big mega project, why not have a lot of these smaller projects that have low impact on the environment? You don't have to dam the river, you know, so it's the concept is distributed power. And uh, there, there's a case study. They have this system in uh, Kyushu. There's a company that builds them all over Kyushu. And, uh, uh, these micro uh, micro uh, <laughs> hydropower turbines, and the size they 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 put it into a, a a container box, so you don't even need to build a building to put the turbine in. You just have a truck and you just plop the container box down and you just plug it in, connected to the grid. But anyway, in that case study, these systems pay for themselves in like eight to 10 years. And then after that, you're just generating profit. You're selling the electricity to the electric grid. Or using it for yourself instead of buying it. Yeah, or you can use it for yourself. It's a lot easier to sell it, but it's kind of weird. You sell the power, then you buy the power back, right? But anyway, but yes, you, 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 you having electricity, you know, you can generate, you can get money because why? It's hard, like like if we make uh, mochi, you know, how much mochi do we have to sell to the city to make some money, right? How many cus- mochi customers can we get? You know, if we have tourism, how many hotel rooms do we have? How many tourists can we support? But when it comes to electricity, everybody needs electricity, right? Especially the cities, the power-hungry cities. And... Uh, and especially in the future, when when things become more electricity, you know, they're going to phase out even, well, they're phasing out coal, they're phasing out oil, they're going to even phase out natural gas. And it's, well, when I mean natural gas, not the to produce electricity, but natural gas for like cooking, for example, or heating water. And it's all going to be like, you know, everything's run by electricity. Where is that electricity going to come from? Are we going to have more? Coal plants, which Japan is doing, you know? No, let's say no to that. 
Yeah. Um, but to meet to meet the 2030 targets, to meet the 2050 targets, they need more innovation like this. And if you can supply your own power needs, you also have your self-reliance in case something happens to the yeah. national grid, exactly. uh, your little community, you can survive. You've got your own energy. Right. How attractive is that? That right. will also bring new residents. I've been because trying to... They have their own food, they have their own clean water, they have their own energy. Right. How attractive is that to new exactly. residents? Really attractive, right? It, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just like there, there's, you know, to buy coal, to buy oil, that money is going to another country. That money could be coming here. All you need to do is invest a little bit and you're going to get this huge return. You know, the, the countryside won't need any more tourists, you know, because they'll or, or they won't need to rely on tourists for money. The craftsmen won't need to rely on selling their paper for money. I'm not. Well, I'm not saying that each individual will get money directly, but they will benefit. The communities will definitely benefit. Well, if you if you don't have to buy power that can fuel a lot of other innovation. Exactly. You can get people coming and learning art or crafts or living on a very low income. Some of these uh, very self-reliant uh, small communities, people are surviving on one, $120 a month, 12,000 yen. Like that's all they need to spend to survive. And other people say they don't need anything. They just barter and trade for food and energy. It's amazing. So these are the, the communities of the future, I think. I think so, too. I mean, we're going to see. Um, so, so like because of the, you know, the Internet, like because because when I lived in Wakayama, that was 30 years ago, pre-Internet. So I know what living in the countryside was like without the Internet. It was lonely. I remember writing letters, you know, and then yeah. sending them to all my friends and then coming home and opening my mailbox to see, did I get communication from the outside world, you know? And, uh, you know, so my message literally, literally took like a month, right? A couple weeks there, a couple weeks back, you know, of just but now, thanks to COVID, a lot of people have the option to work right. from home to telework, right? What's everything? It's like it's like if you live in the countryside, you don't need stores. You really don't because you're just gonna. I mean, because what they said was that a lot of stores closed, and I love mom and pop businesses, but they're not sustainable, you know. So. If you live in a countryside, you just go on online, order what you need, you get it the next day, right? Uh, even restaurants, like opening a lot of restaurants in the small town, you're just not going to have enough customers. So why not have a kitchen where like people in the morning, you order your meal for that? Because you know if you're going to eat dinner, you don't need to like, oh, what am I going to eat right now? You know what I mean? That just doesn't happen in the countryside. You can't go to a fast food and get a burger. So you just go online, you order your menu or, or you know, you order your dinner and then the kitchen will make it and then have it delivered to you. 
you know? So instead of having a, a restaurant, and I know restaurants are great for, for a certain, but when you live in a countryside, opening a restaurant is just not sustainable. You're not going to make enough money doing it. That's, that's where Alex Kerr, his guest houses, has really supported the local community because all of his guests, there's nowhere to eat in the middle of the, where the houses are. So he's supporting the local people who are making the meals for his guests as a part of giving back to the community, feeding the money back in. It's wonderful. Yeah, All has to be ordered in advance, of course, but... Right. You know, you can create good systems like that, I think. So, so yeah, even like education, like these, the schools here, you know, as you know, like, like the student population, like my son's first year class, 11 kids, right? Two teachers for 11 kids. How sustainable is that? You know, how long are you going to keep these schools open? And then you're going to expect children to, like, there's no high school here. So if you have a family, what are you going to do with your high school age child? Are you going to ship them off to the city and then they go to high school there? So, you know, online education is, is you know, for better or for worse, that's your solution. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is like, like the infrastructure changes. And so what you're doing with the countryside is all of a sudden it becomes a viable option for living. Does that make sense? Like you can live in the countryside, you have your shopping, you have your, you know, uh, education and whatnot, your entertainment, you know, your communication, and then your work, the most important thing, right? You're working off the internet. And so you can choose to live in the countryside a lot more easier. So I do think, now, now the problem will be housing. You know, there's a lot of empty houses here and it's not easy to tear down a broken down house or it's not easy to, you know, in some cases they can't find the owners to these houses. There and is some good regulation, which is coming top down to help. Uh, there are certain regulations that are kind of forcing people to sell who don't want to sell. Uh, maybe their ancestor, their descendant is going to want to live there 30 years from now. So they're making it harder to for people to hold on to these empty houses. Um, if people want to live there, you know, there should be options, right? I've heard that so many other areas, Bobby. It's It's happening all over where there are houses, but people can't rent. They can't buy. They can't have a place to stay. It's a big yeah. problem, right? Yeah, it is. So they got to figure out if if you do want to have people move to the countryside, you got to figure out where they're going to live. Um, but to tell the truth, though, like I, I kind of have this uh, like like it's not because you got these like small hamlets way in the mountains, and you know you gotta you gotta have the road, you gotta keep that road maintained, and you gotta keep it powered and things like that. And it's just like, you know, just let that go back to nature, you know, my feeling. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, if it's surviving on tourism, then maybe it can survive a little bit longer, but yeah, it's, it's tough, right? 
Uh, Bobby, we just have one more minute. Uh, what are your closing words of motivation for other people who are thinking about moving out to the rural areas or being entrepreneurs outside well, the cities? Is it worth trying? Well, I just, uh, th th there's two things. Uh, one is, you know, when it comes to like all these big global problems, like you got to think small. Don't think big, think small, you know, think about what can you do in your community, you know, for yourself first and then for your community and then share that information. You got to think small, you know, that's the only way we can do it. And then that, that we can make change, right. By acting small. And then the other thing is, you know, it's not about like, to me, it's no longer about revitalization. You know, am I trying to get people to come move back into the countryside? You know, does that, does that build communities and things? You know, to me, it's not about revitalizing. To me, it's about innovating. You know, you got to innovate. You got to be able to like develop new ideas and to fund them and to, um, you know, to, to, to make that sustainable world. And it's, it's so, I mean, I can see it. I can see it in this, in, in the big city, it's a little bit harder because there's just so many different things, so many different levels. But in the countryside, it's like, look, if we just had this and we just had this and we just had that, we'd have like, you know, everything we need, you know. And to make those two things happen, innovation and to think small and what can we do now? What can we put into action? We need people like you, Bobby. So thank you so much for what you're doing because you're coming from the perspective that you come from, trying to make things happen, trying to put ideas together, trying to connect different people. That seems to be something you're doing really well. So keep up the good work. Yeah, well, I spent my years in Tokyo doing just sitting on my butt doing nothing. So I'm trying to make up for it now. <laughs> I guess this is my this is my midlife crisis. Is like, oh, I better do something. You're doing stuff which is meaningful for you and other people. So I love that. Great. Well, I am looking for somebody who has knowledge in renewable energy, like to just kind of like network with. Like, how are we going to get renewable energy systems like solar? I don't, I don't understand like how they work and things like that. So, well, you're you're connected to Mukai Brewery, and he's a scientist. Maybe he can work on renewable energy and the hydro, micro hydro together. That sounds great. Okay. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. We'll check in again in one year's time and check on your progress. All right. Thank you. All right. Fun to chat with you good thanks good so much bobby <laughs> thanks thanks everyone for joining yeah take I care everyone okay thanks bobby thanks everyone bye bye Room. I show my tears to you, I'm stronger.
I dropped the armor, now I'm bolder.